I do love the way that you all love one another. Uh, it's, it's a testimony to God's work in you that there's such a, a joy um, where this isn't stiff and awkward, where this, is, this really does feel like um, a family in a lot of ways. So that's a joy. Um, if you uh, wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one uh, somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 398. 398. And um, lots of thoughts. I just want to begin, though, just. Um, thanking Aaron and the worship team. I mean, they're um, putting in some significant effort to help us um, not just sing songs um, about God, but to God so that we can um, encounter him uh, in real and tangible ways. So can we just honor them and thank them? It's doing a great job, grateful for them. And um, as we continue just in the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see that that just the idea of worship is actually what fueled this movement to see um, the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. It's a desire to connect with the living God and live in light of who he is. And so um, the, the title that we've given this series is called The Restorers. And um, a big picture idea in the book of Nehemiah is that the people of God would come alive um, actually to their identity as restorers, right? So the big idea that we're talking about for us as a church is we're not just a group of people that received a message of good news and now we're going to kind of camp in a holy huddle here, right, and have our ticket to heaven punched and somehow wait for the end of the world or whatever. We are actually a group of people who get to participate with God with what he's doing in the world and his purpose through Jesus Christ is to make everything new. I want to begin with a quote from Gabe Lyons in his book, The Next Christians. This kind of helps us get our mind around the idea of being restorers. That's, he says, Restorers seek to mend the earth's brokenness. They recognize that the world will not be completely healed until Christ's return. But they believe that the process begins now as we partner with God through sowing seeds of restoration. They believe others will see Christ through us and the Christian faith will reap a much larger harvest. And so what we're endeavoring to do is ask God by the power of his spirit, to take our everyday ordinary efforts and to infuse them with a a form of gospel intentionality so that the whole world can see what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. That's a short definition of the church. But, I mean, there's a really important caveat that we have to make this morning before we jump into the end of Nehemiah chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 3. How do we as the people of God, look out and see the brokenness and the devastation of the world and not be simply overwhelmed, right? How do you look at the slums in Calcutta, India and not become overwhelmed? How do you look at the continued scarring um, that exists in this city from religion and racism and segregation? How do you not look at generational problems and cyclical problems and not grow overwhelmed? 
Well, we're going to find the answer to that this morning in Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. And um, Christians have unique ways of dealing with the, the problem of brokenness. And it almost... Um, you can almost tell that it falls along generational lines. Like if you come from an older generation, oftentimes the way to deal with brokenness is just to ignore it, right? To push it down, to put on your best face, especially like if you consider yourself a Christian. Like the idea of coming into a room like this is kind of to impress everyone. So there's kind of a form of naive optimism that kind of flourishes, a little bit of a Ned Flanders Christianity. know who Ned Flanders is? All right. All my Simpsons fans gets that. All right. So, right. Um, A a form of naive optimism. But then if you're from a younger generation, the response to the brokenness of the world is a form of jaded cynicism. Like, I'm just not going to deal with anything. I'm not going to feel anything. And both of those extremes are ways to cope with brokenness, right? Either from a generation that wants to just have a form of naive optimism or a group of people that want to actually be jaded to the whole world. Both of those things are less than living. Both of those don't give us an avenue to actually begin to see the world as it is in light of who God is. And so what we're going to look at this morning is how do we look at the overwhelming problems of the world and see the good news and the hope of the gospel, right? So the short answer to that dilemma is revival, that the God of this universe enters into the story and there are certain points and times in history when he pours out his spirit in such a way that renewal and revival and transformation begins to happen. And that is our great hope, that at any moment God can do anything that he wants to do, that he can take our normal efforts and he can add the wind of his Holy Spirit and begin to see things grow and move. And the book of Nehemiah is specifically in the Bible for the people of God to begin to long for revival to begin to pray for revival, and to begin to step out and act in faith, in fact, of a God that revives and restores and loves to make broken things whole. That's the story of the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to look at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? I'm going to read the end of chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 9 through 20. Then I came, this is Nehemiah speaking, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, I'm not sure their parents were very kind to them, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I expected I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went 
up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in the good of these words, that this would not be a history lesson, but this would be um, an exercise in seeing your power and your glory. I pray that we see your work in us and we see the work that you want to do through us and it inspires us in light of what you've done through Jesus Christ. I pray that the result of this morning specifically would be that you would help us to rise up and build as a church, that you would help us to take faith-filled risks that we would be a group of people that take you at your word and believe that you are who you say you are. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit. I ask that you would fill me with the power of the Spirit to be able to speak your words to these people that I love. We need you to give us ears to hear, to pay attention. Lord, thank you for your grace. I pray that you would be with us and guide us and lead us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole story that we've been looking at in the book of Nehemiah kind of hinges on what takes place in verses 9 through 20. Um, This is where it goes from being an individual man's mission and he believes in in a real way that he's heard from God and he's called to go back to Jerusalem and begin a rebuilding project. But this is where Um, it it becomes really real for Nehemiah because he actually has to step out and speak that vision to other people. Um, He actually has to go to a city that he's never been to. He begins to walk around. He begins to inspect things. He begins to look at the brokenness for himself. And then he begins to enlist, uh, really to enlist the help of the people that remained in the city of Jerusalem. And um, the thing that just stood out to me as I began to look at the end of chapter 2. There are at least 18 references to a personal pronoun, either I or me, in these verses. And so I think what that can teach us before we get into unpacking what Nehemiah actually did is that we're not called to neglect our God story, right? That we all have a story that God has given us, 
that we are to be stewards of, that we are to listen to God, that we are to tell his story. So 18 times in these 11 verses, we see the words I or me. And and what we pick up on it is Nehemiah's passion to tell the story. I mean, it's almost as if um, this story is something that is unbelievable and he has to get down on paper. He doesn't want this message to go the way of history. He wants to write it down. And this is not just mere history. He wants the people of God for all time to know that the promises of God are are completely and totally true, that God does not change and he will be faithful to the end. God had acted in the life of Nehemiah and I almost imagine as he's going through this scenario that his hand is shaking a little bit. He's like, I remember when those men came and brought the report of the brokenness of Jerusalem and I remember how undone I was. I remember four months of praying and fasting and asking God what to do. I remember that. I remember that moment when I had to step out and tell the king what was bothering me. And then miracle upon all miracles is the fact that the king said, I want to help you to actually rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then in verses 9 through 20, I can't believe that I had the privilege of opening up my mouth and people actually listened and they wanted to join in and help. That's the story. And the truth is, if you're here this morning, you have a God story, right? If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he has acted on you. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. He has placed his spirit upon you. And and, and all throughout history, especially in the Old Testament, the way that the faith was passed down was through stories. I want to tell you about the faithfulness of God. And the way that revival begins among the people of God is that we don't assume our stories. We don't keep it to ourselves in times and moments of trial and weakness. We say, I want to tell you about the faithfulness of my God. I want to tell you about the time when I didn't know what I was going to do. And this is my story. I want to tell you about when I left Atlanta to pursue a church planting dream. I want to tell you the story about how I walked up to rent a place in Memphis when I didn't have a job. And I told them, they, they said, they said uh, where do you work? And I said, I, said, I, I have my own business. And it was a business that I hadn't even started yet. It was in my mind. And I received the favor of God, right? I have the story like that. And then door after door that God continues to open. And you have moments just like that in your life. Don't neglect your God story. He has designed your story specifically for you so that you could tell the world of his glory, right? God is at work. He has designed your story. We, it never quite works out the way that we think it's going to work out, but we are to be stewards of that story and tell the next generation of his faithfulness. So don't neglect your God story. And, I mean, this is a scary moment in this story. I think the estimated distance between the capital of Susa in Persia and Jerusalem is about 845 miles. So, I mean, if you're going by horseback or by donkey, that's going to take a long time. That's a, a lot of opportunity for self-doubt. I mean, how in the world are these people going to listen to actually what I have to say? But I think there's a lot to learn from Nehemiah. I mean, he steps foot on the ground. 
And this is wise and humble leadership. He doesn't just set up like on a soapbox in the middle of the square of Jerusalem and say, hey, God has called me to rebuild this city. What he does is he actually gets on the ground. He actually goes to the gates. He actually starts to meet people on the street and he begins to get to know their story. So one of the things that This is where revival comes from being just an abstract concept to actually something that we can experience when brokenness and the mass and the sea of humanity actually begins to have faces on it. So we're asking each gospel community this year to begin to think and pray about ways that they can engage pockets of brokenness and lostness. And and, and a way that I would encourage you to do that is to actually get on the ground Go somewhere together, walk around and pray and ask God to show you what he's called you to do, to inspect the brokenness, to stop, to talk to people, to listen to their stories and see how God might have you respond and God might have you act. Now, this, these verses, 17 through 20, are the essence of revival. Look at them with me. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So revival and renewal and restoration becomes very personal and very real when it tears down the walls of division. Notice Nehemiah has never lived in Jerusalem, and he says, let us rise and build. See the trouble that we are in, right? There's no longer a division between those kinds of people and these kinds of people. Revival begins to happen among the people of God when we jointly own the brokenness of the world. The brokenness that we see across the street or across the city, these are our brothers and sisters. Let us rise and build. Let us go to them because they are in trouble. Let us go to them because they are suffering in derision. Right. So revival happens as we tear down walls of division. And I don't know when it happened, but when was love supposed to be relegated to people that think like us, that act like us, that dress like us, that are morally worthy of love? That's so anti-gospel. Christian love rejects merit-based compassion. That's how we know when revival is taking place among the people of God. We don't love with distinctions. We don't say, if you will change, I will love you. No, we love people based on the love that we've received from the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's very specific the way that Nehemiah approaches this. He says, come let us rebuild the wall that we will no longer suffer derision 
Another version says, so that we will no longer be disgraced. So these people, they had experienced the shame and the brokenness of being separated from God. And there's something that takes place in these verses where they've seen the brokenness of their city and they've seen the brokenness of their own heart and they're able by faith to say, despite all of that, that's who God is and this is who we are. Let us rise and build. This is the kind of God that we serve. The God that takes away the derision and the disgrace of his people and then begins to use them to change the life of others that come into their paths. Mary Carr, who is a best-selling author of the book called The Liar's Club, when she considers her own conversion story, she was an unlikely candidate for the gospel. And Mary Carr, her mother, was married seven times. Her mother was so abusive that at one point, her mother went on this anger, rage tangent and burned all of her toys. I mean, that's the kind of home that Mary Carr grew up in. And she felt like she was utterly incapable of receiving grace And after her conversion, this is what she said about her state before God came to her. She said, if you would have told me a year before that I would be whispering my sins in the confessional or on my knees saying the rosary, I would have laughed myself cockeyed. A more likely pastime, pole dancer, international spy, drug mule, or assassin, right? So the seeds of renewal begin to take place and flourish when we see the God of the disgraced begin to renew and to restore. We reject merit-based compassion as a church, categorically. We will love because we have been loved. We love because he first loved us. And we will love without distinction and without division because that's the way that God loved us. He came looking for us. That brings us to our next point. Let us rise and build. When the gift of faith begins to birth in their heart, there's something that God does to give them the faith to believe that he is who he says he is. That word rise is a resurrection word. This is not just them saying, hey, we're going to come together and we're going to do this thing. This is them saying, we once again believe that we are the people of God. We once again believe that actually God wants to use us to bring his good news message to the world. They were believing that God was actually at work in them, that he was going to build them up in such a way that they could bring hope, that they would be a light to the nations. That's what it says in the book of Isaiah, that God would rebuild them so that they could rebuild, that God would renew them so that other people could experience renewal through them, that they actually would be restorers, that they would rebuild so that the city of God would once again flourish. And that's the call of us as a church. Now, you have to understand how tempting this would be for the people of God. Nehemiah shows up on the ground. They've never met this guy. And he's basically telling them, 
the problems that you have seen and experienced your whole life, God is going to address and change, right? So the things that are generational problems, the God of this universe wants to bring awakening to the people of God that he actually is passionate about changing the brokenness that exists in the world. That's what's taking place in the heart of the people of God. That is revival. When we begin to say, yes, I know that that's the way that things have always been here, but because of who God is, they don't have to stay that way. That as we begin to act and as we begin to believe, as we begin to step out, that the God of the universe will strengthen our hands so that we can rise and build. That's the call of the people of God, that we would rise and build. Now, this means having a hopeful yet realistic view of renewal, right? Because we don't want to fall off on the ditch where we're just optimistic and God's going to change everything in an instant and then become overwhelmed with the brokenness. It means both simultaneously celebrating the beauty of God and the things that he is doing and living with hope and light of the things that he actually wants to do. So I just want us to think for a few minutes, what would it look like for us to rise and build as a church? What would it be like for us to take God at his word, to ask him to strengthen our hands and to step out in faith and to see and believe him to do more than we're currently seeing? The first thing is I think that God has given this church a special call when it comes to foster care and adoption. To rise and build for us as a church means that we want to labor for every orphan to find a home. That we actually, as the people of God, as we represent the father of the fatherless, that we begin, despite the red tape, despite the potential for pain that exists in our own hearts and our own lives, despite the financial implications of what those things might mean, despite the abuses, despite the neglect, that we say we will rise up and build, that we will care for those that can't care for themselves. That's what it means for us as a church. And there's so many people in this room that are already doing that, but I believe that God wants to continue to birth that dream in and among us so that we can labor for every orphan to find a home. It also simultaneously means that we don't neglect the public school system, right? Um, It's extremely broken in Jonesboro, but that doesn't mean that we say, well, there's too much bureaucracy, there's too much red tape, this can't change. It means that we begin to love people where they are. There are mentoring programs. I mean, this really is a problem of fatherlessness that exists not just in our city, but cities around here, that we begin to say, I will take ownership, I will rise, I will build because the good hand of my God is with me. So we will address those kinds of issues. It means for those of you that are involved in campus outreach, it means, I know it can be discouraging. 
I know you can look out on any given weekend and see more people that are apathetic to the gospel, more people that seem to be seeking their own pleasure in anything and everything but God. And instead of seeing that um, as an obstacle, seeing that as a, a whole generation of people that are longing for satisfaction, that are longing to experience life, that are longing to experience joy, and then you have the privilege of saying, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. That's what it means to begin to look at the fields that are ripe with harvest with faith for us as a church. That we would rise, that we would build. It also means that we don't become discouraged when we look at expansion and church planting. Despite negative statistics that the church is on the decline that throughout the South, churches look like a graveyard. I mean, you could, um, they're, they're definitely closing faster than they're starting. That we begin to say that that presents a massive opportunity for us as the people of God to begin to plant grace-saturated, spirit-empowered churches that proclaim the good news of the King. Right? This void, this vacuum that exists in the South is an opportunity for the people of God to say, yes, despite the ruin, despite the devastation, despite the religiosity, we will rise and we will build. That's the call, I believe, that God has for us as a church. And a primary tool, um, and I just want to plug Porterbrook, we believe with all our hearts that this course is to help to equip men and women, to fulfill their calling to do ministry in and through the local church, to plant local churches, to see expansion efforts form. And so um, if that excites you on any level, I want to invite you just to go put your name on the list today. So there's going to be two groups that I, I think need to respond to this. It's the people that say, I, I want to give my life to seeing renewal happen. And I believe that God's calling me to take this course. And there's going to be another group in this room that say, maybe that's not for me, but you're able to help to fund this. Because um, we are extremely healthy financially as a church, and we have money that we can invest in these things. But there's something about partnering together when people say, I want to fund the mission and I want to use this money and I want to ask God to raise up and multiply churches with this money. So I want to fund someone to take this course. So if you have the gift of generosity, which many of you do, just ask you to pray. Is that something that God would have you invest in? We don't ask for money. God doesn't need your money. But we want to see as many people equipped with the good news of the gospel to take it forward as possible. So would you prayerfully consider that? And I'm going to be honest, I love this because there's this real angst that exists, I think, in my own heart where I've been a pastor for probably 10 years now. And most people spend most of their time praying sincerely, like, what am I called to do, right? Looking for permission to do certain things. And I think 
the heart of God behind the book of Nehemiah is that we get to try stuff, right? You don't need permission, right? I mean, we're not wanting to send out people that are ill-equipped or, you know, you have major character defects. But, but listen, we don't need permission. We have the Great Commission, right? We get to go to all nations, with the good news of Jesus Christ, making disciples. So where is your passion? Where is your dream? Where is your sphere? Where is your desire? Well, those are the places that God has called you to go. Those are the places that God has given you influence. You don't have to sit and wring your hands and wonder, should I do this? The answer is always yes. And the answer to how that takes place is in the context of a local church. We're here for you so that you can be equipped, so that you can be deployed, and you can fulfill the call that God has given you in your life. So every sphere of life, whether it's your job, whether it's your hobbies, God wants to use those things to point other people to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us rise and build. Which brings me to our final point. What we are a part of is more important than the part that we play. What we are a part of is more important than the part that we play. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. At quick glance, you read chapter 3, it appears to be a list of names, and it is. But these lists of names are very significant to who God has called us to be as a local church. Verses 1 and 2. Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. And set its doors, they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And this whole chapter repeats that cycle over and over again. The people of God rose up together, they began to build. And I think there's a lot that we can learn in these few minutes from these chapters. So if you look at the chapter as a whole, it says that this group of people owned this pocket of ruin and owned this pocket of destruction, and they said, we will rise and build. No one group of people can address all the brokenness, but... What one group of people can do is own one pocket of brokenness. And so, and I love it because this is, this is when you know it's revival. Nobody cares what part they play, right? If you read this chapter, it is filled with all kinds of skilled laborers and unskilled laborers. And they lay their gifts, they lay their talents, they lay their resources down, and they say, we will rise and build in light of who God is and the devastation that exists in our city. We will use that. So there are priests who I guarantee you are highly unskilled laborers, right? But these guys, they got after it with a hammer and they began to lead the way. They began to build the sheep gate. There are goldsmiths in there. There are families that do this together. There are sons. And there's this one, I love this because I I have a lot of friends and all they have is girls. There's a dad with his girls and they're building a section of the wall together. They're not worried about who gets credit. They are on task and they are on mission and they are convinced that 
what they are a part of is more important than the part that they play. They're not pulling out, that's not my gift card, right? That's just a subtle way in Christianity to say, I don't want to do that, right? Listen, most of the renewal that needs to take place in this city and most of the renewal that needs to take place in neighborhoods, it's disguised as hard work, right? It's not all (laughs) glitz and glam and conferences. It's actually sitting with people and crying with people and giving money to people, right? You don't have to have a spiritual gift to do that. It looks like a lot of hard work, but when the Spirit of God comes and this person does their job and this person does their job and they own it and God puts His Spirit on it, it begins to grow. We can plant seeds and we can water it, but God Himself is the only one that can make it grow. But we get stuck at the part of, I'm not sure I want to do that right? So they owned it. I I love it. I was talking to Trenton before the meeting. Um, It says in a couple of places in chapters two and three, there's the dung gate, like dung. Like who wanted to rebuild that gate, right? It was named the dung gate for a reason. I'm sure there was some manure piles that were around there, but somebody said, you know what? I'm going to own that. That's going to be my part. That's going to be my testimony. And it takes all kinds of stories, right? Not just the glamorous parts, but it's I'm going to own this. This may not even seem like it's essential, but I, if, if I can lend a hand or if I can hold a baby or if I can help reconstruction. I mean, we're in our own Nehemiah project if you're looking out in the lobby. I don't have that skill set, but I'm going to give what I have to see these things go forward. I'm going to give myself to my gospel community. Whatever I have, I'm going to give so that it can be used. So the Spirit of God comes on the people and they say, use me, right? That's the cry of chapter three. Here's my gifts. Here's my hands. Here's my resources. Put me to work. That's revival. Moves. God's always had great individuals that he's used throughout scripture. But what's really exciting is when every single person gets involved. That's revival. That's when the church becomes the church, and that's when the gospel becomes non-ignorable. Most of the reason that people can ignore Christianity is because it's a few individuals who may be highly gifted and highly skilled. They do their part, and everybody else watches. Revival is in the streets with real people using the gifts that God has given them, and asking God, would you please cause this to grow? Now, I'm going to conclude with this. And this point comes totally and completely from my friend Vivian Wixted, who said, I can't wait till we get to chapter 3. Um, she told me uh, about a study that Dr. Michael Youssef had done. There's a very specific theological reason that they began with the sheep gate, right? It's not random. They're making a theological statement by repairing the sheep gate. I didn't know what the sheep gate was. The sheep gate was the gate that was closest to the temple. It was the gate through which, in the past, thousands upon thousands of lambs were led to the slaughter in the temple for the sacrifice of sins. 
And so what the people of God were saying, our first priority is to be reconciled and renewed to God. That mercy must once again flow in the house of God. We want to rebuild this gate so that worship can be restored, so that sacrifices could be made, so that sin could be atoned for. And what they didn't know when they were rebuilding that gate is that in just 400 years later, that that gate would lead to a hill called Calvary. And there would be a lamb that would take away the sin of the entire world. That there would be a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The good news of this task of renewal and restoration is that God completely pays the cost himself at the sacrifice of his own son. We don't have to work this up. God is more committed to this than we are. He's more vested than we are. So much so that he invested the life, the death, and the resurrection of his own son. God himself is more committed to this than we are. We don't have to work this up in our own strength. We have this idea that mercy flows from the people of God out to the world. That God is in the process of restoring this message of the gospel. And that's what's taking place in the church right now. There is a recovery. There has been generations that have assumed this message of grace. That have assumed this message of forgiveness of sins. And now... It's beginning to bear fruit in people's lives and it's growing all over the world, as the book of Colossians says. All because God himself owns the mission of restoration. So it's not up to us to do this, but we want to position ourselves to see mercy flow once again from the people of God out to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Thank you that you renew us so that we can renew. Thank you that you forgive us so we can reveal the forgiver of sins. I pray that the rest of this service would be our response to your love, that we would be encouraged and equipped and your efforts would be multiplied to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.